Welcome back to the program. Why is it that certain cultural and or ethnic groups tend to have greater success? Far in excess of their percentage of the population. Jews, Indians, Iranians, Chinese, Mormons, and a few others. These groups are simply more financially and academically successful than others in the U.S. And while hearing this often sends powerful signals to our racial antenna, the fact is that if we can answer the question of why, perhaps we can find a formula to lift up others, to truly find the holy grail of personal, economic, and cultural fulfillment. My guests, Amy Chua and Jed Rubenfeld, have been on this search. And while what they found makes a lot of people uncomfortable, the fact is it may be a key to rebirthing the spirit that made America great. Amy Chua and Jeb Rubenfeld are professors at Yale Law School. Amy Chua is the John M. Duff Professor of Law. She's the author of the best-selling Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother and was named by Time Magazine as one of the most influential people in the world. Jed Rubenfeld is the John R. Slaughter Professor of Law at Yale Law School. He's the author of two books on constitutional law. It is my pleasure to welcome Amy Chua and Jed Rubenfeld here to talk about the Triple Package, how three unlikely traits explain the rise and fall of cultural groups in America. Amy, Jed, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be on. Great to have you here. First of all, talk a little bit about the search for these traits. How did this process evolve for you? Well, I actually, um, in my first book, World on Fire, which nobody really knows about because that was before the, the whole Tiger Mom firestorm, <laughs> I've been interested in disproportionately successful groups around the world including the Chinese and Indonesia and, you know, uh, Indians in East Africa, the Lebanese in West Africa. So I've been involved in that and doing research for almost 25 years. I would say that Jed came at this as a constitutional law professor. He's really interested in the relationship between democracy and time and uh, uh, kind of, you know, the idea of living in the present. Um, and we just decided to kind of, you know, look more into this phenomenon. We teach at Yale Law School. And we look around and we started noticing about 10 years ago, wait, there, there seem to be a lot of Mormon students or, wow, this is a really large number of Nigerian and Ghanaian students. In fact, you know, out of 18 African-American students, 16 of them had an immigrant parent and obviously Asian-Americans. Now, is this just our weird perception? Is there anything to this? So we put together a big research team and we started to figure out, you know, what is a stereotype and what is fact? And that's kind of how we we started with this whole process. The conventional wisdom in this discussion generally leads down the road to immigration and immigrants in general, that it becomes a self-selecting population, and it really is in some ways the, the most adventurous and the best and the brightest sometimes that really takes that gamble to immigrate, immigrate to a strange country. Talk a little bit, Jeb, about what extent that played a role in this. Well, I think it does play a role to some extent. You know, uh, immigrants who come to the United States are not uh, representative of uh, the country uh, that they're coming from often. So, and that, that, those immigrant selectivity factors do play a role, especially, for example, with Indian American success. But you know what? It, it's just not a full explanation of what's going on. First of all, a couple of the, the groups that uh, we focus on in the book who are doing really well are not immigrant groups, um, uh, Mormon Americans and uh, Jewish Americans who are no longer an immigrant group in the United States. But, you know, more than that, uh, you've got uh, uh, immigrants who come over to America who are um, working class. They are not educated. They are not rich. Uh, they are uh, restaurant workers, factory workers. And then their kids uh, 
uh, rise at extraordinary rates. And that's the phenomenon we're talking about. I mean, we have a problem of inequality in this country. We have declining upward mobility, and yet for some families, for some individuals, and some groups out there, um, there's still upward mobility. Um, uh, there's still the American dream. Uh, they are rising at rates way higher than the rest of the country. And all we're saying is, look, we know it's a, a, some, in some places a taboo subject, but let's pull back the curtain and, and see what they're uh, uh, doing uh, inside those families. You know, what, 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 are they, what messages are they sending their kids? How are they, how are they doing this? And, and that's what our book's about. Talk about, Amy, why you feel this is a taboo subject. And when this book first came out, you did come in for a lot of criticism. Talk about that. And what is it that is inherent in this subject that makes people so uncomfortable? Well, you know, we've been thinking about this a lot, Jeff. And uh, honestly, I think that if you read the book, you realize that there is no reason why this topic should be taboo. We show that success and drive has nothing to do with race or skin color. Some of the most successful groups in America are black, are Hispanic Americans, so that we kind of debunk all the IQ um, uh, theories. Uh, we also show that, you know, there's this very strong third-generation decline phenomenon. So Asian Americans have SAT scores of 140 points above the national average. But if you break out the third-generation you see that third-generation Asian Americans do no better than the rest of the country. And that, again, shows why this book actually should be something we should all talk about. That shows that there's nothing intrinsic in a group, that there's nothing, you know, essentialist about a culture, right? Rather, it's much more this interaction um, uh, with generations and immigrant mentality. So the reason why, I think some people want to say, look, if you're saying that some groups are doing better academically or economically because of something they're doing, some behavior, some mentality. We can't say that because that is suggesting that other groups, it's their fault that they're poor. And we could not disagree with this more. We are crystal clear in our book that our book is not a theory of poverty. You know, when it comes to why some of the poorest groups in America are poor, it's obvious. It's history of slavery, discrimination. You know, in Appalachia, these macroeconomic changes that wiped out entire sectors that have nothing to do with culture. But the fact remains that it's just wrong to say, look, that means, you know, especially from the politically correct left, that it's just all discrimination. It's all discrimination. And to suggest that there's anything that people could do, uh, you know, to change their behavior and improve their plight would be to be blaming the victim. And I think that that's exactly backwards. You know, to say that there's nothing an individual group or a family or a community can do um, is actually very dehumanizing. You know, of course we have to fight discrimination and fix our institutions, but that takes a long time. And so our idea is let's open up, let's pull back the curtain, let's look at some of these groups that, again, start off very poor, often with no education, and yet they're still rising. What are they doing? What are they telling their kids? Um, and we can maybe learn from it. And, I mean, maybe that's why our anti-poverty and education policies just never seem to improve, no matter how much money we pour into it. And one of the things that you find is that the groups that are succeeding, the individuals in those groups that are succeeding, possess these three qualities that you refer to as the triple package. Talk a little bit about what those qualities are. Um, well, the three qualities are... Um First, a uh, superiority complex. That's like a feeling that uh, 
you're, um, you belong to an exceptional or very special group. Second, it uh, might seem like the opposite, insecurity, a feeling of not being good enough yet or being looked down on. And third, um, impulse control, like grit, discipline. And it's really the, the, the first two that uh, seem to really be doing a lot of the work and, 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 and create a kind of drive because uh, that feeling of, um, of uh, I'll give you an example, like Steve Jobs. Okay, He's not from any of the groups we talked about because these qualities are accessible to anybody. They're, they're not the possession of, of any particular group. So Steve Jobs famously had a huge ego, described as narcissistic, believed he could change the world. At the same time, his closest friends all described him as insecure, and nobody knows exactly why. Some people say it was because he was born an orphan, but it was that combination. He believed in himself. He had this huge ego, but he also felt constantly he had to prove himself. He, he felt like he wasn't good enough yet, and of course, he had um, the third quality as well, a lot of discipline, impulse control, famous for that. So those are the three qualities. Anybody can have them, and they seem to just be an engine that uh, produces um, uh, disproportionate success. And in some groups in America right now, you know, they're, 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 they're communicating these values to their, to their next generation more than the rest of us are. My favorite story, Jeff, is about Justice Sonia Sotomayor, whom we discussed in the book. She was from a struggling Puerto Rican family, not, you know, an unusually successful group. Her father was an alcoholic. Her mother was never around. But she credits her grandmother with instilling in her the sense of exceptionality, that she was destined for great things. Obviously, a lot of insecurity growing up poor in the Bronx. But the piece that's so related to why this topic shouldn't be taboo is that she writes in her amazing biography that she was not a good student for her early childhood, not until she was like 15, you know, 10. And finally, in fifth grade, she went up to the best student in her class and said, how are you such a good student? What do you do? And the girl started telling her, but, and then Justice Sonia Sotomayor, then 10, said, no, I want to know exactly what you do. When you leave school, what do you do? What do you do when you get home? What? And then she just followed her. And obviously, she's an extraordinary human being. We're not trying to say that anybody can just do this easily. But she writes about she did not have those kinds of role models at that time. She didn't know, but she kind of taught it to herself. And what we're saying is we shouldn't make this taboo. You know, let's, let's look at some of these cultures and families that are clearly producing disproportionate success and, and make it part of the, the national discussion and fold it into our education discussion. Is there a difference as we look at this between insecurity that exists within certain cultural and social groups versus that insecurity and drive in individuals? Is this something that exists in a broader cultural framework, or does it really depend on the individual? Jed? I think it's both. I, I, I think, you know, if we step back for a second, the qualities that we're describing as the triple package, Amy and I think of these as quintessential American qualities, traditional American qualities. America was, was born with a, a, a great sense of its own exceptionality and destiny and mission in the world. At the same time, at the, in, you know, for the first 150 years, we were an underdog country. We, uh, we had a lot of insecurity vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis Europe, and, and, and uh, uh, you know, we, we weren't the, you know, the, the superpower. And we also had this Puritan uh, 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 inheritance of a lot of, you know, very strong work ethic. Uh, Americans were always hardest, among the hardest working in the world. And then something happens in the last few decades 
where we start to move away from that. We become a little bit more of a, an instant gratification society. That's the opposite, by the way, of impulse control. We become more of a self-esteem-based society with educators, psychologists saying, just tell your kids how great they are. Just, just make everybody feel um, uh, uh, great about themselves. That's the opposite, by the way, of insecurity. So America as a culture has, has, has moved away from, from these qualities that, that it was born with and that, that propelled it to success and and uh, and and some of these groups in America have not moved away. They they still are preserving these things in their culture. Now any individual from uh, any group can have these qualities. But what you find is some families, some groups are, uh, are 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 doing better with it. Is there a rule of thumb with respect to how many generations this this balance, this triple package continues? Is there a sense of that, Amy? Absolutely, um, and this is, uh, you know, something, this, the intuition is that success always contains the seeds of its own demise, and this is true of uh, families, it's true of groups and countries. Um, what we have found is in virtually every group, success declines by the third generation. Um, I had mentioned that Asian Americans are very successful academically, but by the, if you break out the third generation, these are the grandchildren of immigrants, that group of Asian Americans performs no better than the national average, which shows that, you know, there's nothing kind of inherent in, quote, Asian culture. The one exception, and I think this is the most fascinating, are the Jews. The Jews in this country are mostly now fourth, fifth, even sixth generation and yet they have maintained extremely high levels and, and actually very diverse kinds of success. You know, 70% of the Tony award-winning lyricists and composers, and Jews are a tiny percent of the population, only 2%, um, you know, a third of the Nobel Prize winners, or maybe it's even higher than that. And I think that the triple package is, you know, really the best theory for explaining that. And that's because the Jews, I mean, Jed, you might want to speak because it's your group, but <laughs> the, uh, the insecurity uh, is kind of unique in the history of, of the Jewish people. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. You know, uh, it's a little awkward to talk about, but because it, it's, uh, you know, it's almost a subject of, of Jewish humor. But yeah, there's a lot of anxiety in, in, among Jews. You know, I saw with my own dad, uh, you know, in, in other groups, when they get comfortable, uh, uh, in a country, and, and this is true of countries as a whole, if you get rich, you, you get soft. But when Jews start to get comfortable in a country, they sometimes get nervous, like, uh-oh, this is when the problems begin. But, you know, I, I want to come back, Jeff, to the, the point you were making about third-generation fall-off, third-generation decline, because I, I just want to emphasize it again. What this proves is it's not genetic. And it doesn't only prove it's not genetic, it also proves it's not about how well your parents were doing. Because... If it was all about how well the parents were doing, then the third generation should do even better than the second generation. But no, they decline. And what this shows is, hey, let's not make this taboo. Let's open up these facts. Let's pull back the curtain, see how these uh, uh, um, uh, 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 parents are doing it with their kids. Because, uh, you know, what? our poverty programs have not been working in this country. And uh, maybe that's because, you know, they have not been uh, they've been missing a big part of the picture. They've just been throwing money. Let's buy kids more computers and put a computer you know, on every desk in the schools. Well, maybe it's more about work habits and attitudes than that. The other part of it, as it relates to schools, it's an interesting analogy because there is a nexus, it seems, with the high school experience in general, Amy, 
where kids, even kids that are doing well, even some of the brightest kids in school, have this deep-seated sense of insecurity about being popular, about being successful. High school, in many ways, inherently breeds elements of the triple package. Well, you know, it's, uh, it, it's quite one of the most fascinating studies that we report is that Asian-American students, this is in a study of 4,000, uh, I think it's freshmen in college, Asian-American students report the lowest level of self-esteem, that is, how good you feel about how you're doing. So they were Asian-Americans report the lowest level of self-esteem, even as they rack up by far the highest grades and scores. So I guess the idea is, you know, that we have a quite an interesting section on the, the latest findings on the self-esteem movement. Um, starting in the 70s, actually it was in California, the idea was like, look, self-esteem is the answer to everything. If we just give everybody self-esteem, tell them you're great, that's going to improve education and performance everywhere. The problem with that is that it severed self-esteem from actual accomplishment. You know, just tell them that you're, you're, you're perfect. And, and the latest studies show that it's actually the opposite. They had these tests where they gave self-esteem boosting messages to, you know, some group of students and they had a control group and they found very starkly that the people given the boosting messages, you know, you're amazing, you're perfect, you're brilliant, performed worse on the tests. Um, so this is, you know, this is something in our culture, again, that's changed. You know, it used to be a very American trope, need to prove yourself. But now it's almost become, wait, if you're telling them that people aren't good enough, that's going to damage their ego. We can't say that. And I think what you're seeing is that the groups, some groups that are kind of going against mainstream thinking, mainstream parenting, mainstream, you know, feel good attitudes are the ones that are actually disproportionately succeeding. To what extent have you found the ability of these traits to be instilled by families. You were talking before, Jed, about it not being genetic and that the evidence certainly points to that. To what extent can these values simply be instilled from the outside? And at what point does it become too late? Well, it's a great question. Um, uh, and psychologists have been studying this, this question, and um, it has been found that, uh, for example, um, uh, impulse control, that, that's the third quality, um, uh, can be... Um, can be instilled and uh, you can work on it yourself or if your parents and you have kids um, you can uh, you can easily uh, um, uh, you know take some effort but you can easily instill this in your kids and um, um, we have been reached out to by um, charter schools uh, working with uh, um, inner city communities in America and they said they read our book they said you know what we haven't been calling them by these names but this is exactly what we're trying to do we think that you have named the qualities we're trying to instill in our kids, and, and they're doing it at, you know, uh, um, uh, 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 elementary school and then junior high school and, and right up through high school, and they are having enormous success in terms of graduation rates. Um, so we are, very, um, we are very hopeful and optimistic that if, if this stuff is, is just not made taboo, but look, if the facts are looked at, we can really um, have an effect on our education system and, and do a lot better with uh, um, uh, poor communities than we have been doing. Amy, is there a mental health price for this success that creating in individuals this duality that, that we've been talking about, this sense of insecurity on the one hand and confidence on the other, does that create a mental health issue that we need to be looking at? 
Well, we devote um, a whole chapter to the pathologies of the triple package, and we, we actually spend an enormous amount of time looking through all the studies you know, concerning depression, anxiety, stress in different groups, and also suicide rates. And so, yes, there is always a danger um, that if you instill in people the sense of you're not good enough yet, you need to get better, you need to do better, that that, that could just be a recipe for misery. And, you know, we have quotes from, uh, um, you know, prominent Asian-Americans. Ang Lee, the famous director, really had a tough childhood um, because this idea that he could just never be good enough. But on the other side, uh, what the studies show, there's one thing, you know, if you look at the media, it all says Asian-Americans have the highest suicide rates, all that stressful parenting. Well, if you actually look at the evidence, this is a Center for Disease Prevention and the American Psychological Association, that is not the case. Asian Americans actually have the lowest suicide rate of any group in the country, and that's true if you break it out men and women, and it's true of every age bracket. Asian American women age 15 to 25 are the most vulnerable group, but at that point, their suicide rates only converge with you know the white average. So it's a very complicated topic. Of course, there are dangers. We talk about the dangers associated with just feeling anxious that you have to keep succeeding. Asian American students, again, express the lowest self-esteem. I mean, that could be a problem. But you have to realize that the opposite of feeling you need to prove yourself is feeling entitled, right? That means I don't need to prove myself. I'm great. I deserve a good job. I deserve to get to be CEO. And Lots and lots of studies that we report show that children who are raised in this kind of self-esteem culture or, or kind of a become often become narcissistic and they suffer the highest rates of depression and anxiety as adults and also can't form loving relationships. If you feel entitled to things, it's actually um, uh, not necessarily a great way to, to have bonds and, and just kind of um, experience happiness in life. So it's a mixed picture. Um, but yes, of course, there are dangers um, with any. I mean, that's, I think, drive. When you see very driven people, you often feel like, wow, there's something missing in this person. Doesn't doesn't look entirely happy. Jed, we've been talking about this with respect to the immigrant experience primarily in America and this as an American phenomenon. Is there a global nature to this? Can we look at this in a larger global framework? Yeah, we, we, we sure can. In, in fact, uh, there are uh, very similar uh, things going on in uh, England, in Canada, and other countries where um, immigrant communities are um, outperforming the uh, national average. And so a number of countries are, you know, scratching their heads and, and saying to themselves, you know, what's going on? How come their kids are doing better than our kids? And, um, uh, you know, people are trying to figure this out, and we think we have, uh, you know, uh, uh, identified the, the, the driving factors. Now, I, I want to also say, though, um, you know, these qualities are not going to make people successful unless they live in a country that has good institutions, the rule of law, that rewards hard work, and has a meritocracy. And so those things you have to have. And uh, if you have a country where those things don't exist, then a group of people could have all these qualities and, and, and they might not get anywhere. So, you know, first thing is we have to give credit to America uh, for making it possible, for having the kind of economy and, and institutions that allow people to rise. We have to recognize that there is discrimination and obstacles in America, but 
um, uh, we also think you've got to be able to, to say without, you know, it being taboo that uh, certain work habits and certain attitudes uh, are going to help you in a country like America. And, and uh, you know, we all, we all should, should, should recognize that. Amy Chua, Jeb Rubenfeld. The book is The Triple Package, How Three Unlikely Traits Explain the Rise and Fall of Cultural Groups in America. Jed, Amy, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank Thanks you. so much, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.